It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Well, welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. You know, the book of Romans in the New Testament is a powerhouse of theological weight. Um, how powerful? Well, you know, it pretty much ignited the Protestant Reformation. Um, yes, it, it, it was after Martin Luther, you know, the theory goes... And the information goes that it was after Martin Luther read Paul's letter to the Romans that he began his challenge to the Catholic Church uh, more than 500 years ago. Now, for some folks, that wasn't a good thing. But it does show that this book, coming right after the Gospel of John and um, actually coming right after all the four Gospels and the Book of Acts, encompasses all of what Christianity is morally, doctrinally, and personally, that our salvation is based on faith in what Jesus Christ has done and that no earthly power can separate us from God's protection. Now, the book is made up of 16 chapters. It's one of the longest letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, and scholars have written books and commentaries on on its deeper meaning. However, N.T. Wright, a brilliant, world-renowned expert on the New Testament, has written a book on just chapter 8. Why? Well, this chapter, he says, is the pulse of Romans. In fact, he says Romans is about the entire biblical narrative. He says, quote, Romans 8 is about the entire biblical narrative. He says, quote, it draws together Genesis and Exodus, uh, the Psalms and Isaiah uh, from the high peak of uh, Romans 8. We can gaze ahead and glimpse the final chapters of Revelation as well. I'm getting chills, actually. I really am. The book is called Into the Heart of Romans, a deep dive into Paul's greatest letter. And N.T. Wright joins me now. Um, you have the distinction, of course, of having taught at Andrews. Um, uh, in, in, in Scotland, right? Yeah, St. Andrews, yes. St. Andrews, the same place that Will and Kate went. Um, uh, and yes, they were a little, that, that was a little before my time there. <laughs> I know, but it's still yeah. interesting. Yeah, oh, sure, sure. It's like, you know, okay, do you know him? Do you go to the yeah. alumni meetings? And, and, and Until it was them, you'd have said, isn't that the place where Jack Nicholas scored his famous victory in some <laughs> golf tournament? You know, because that, <laughs> that also is true. <laughs> okay, so yeah. we've got some context here. Some context here. Um, before we get going on Romans, because I think this is a huge, huge thing, um, um, what's happening in the Middle East today, of course, has an incredible biblical significance. And from this perspective of the last hundred years, which is important, um, there is e- it's easy to take kind of different kind of sides politically. But when you get the narrative, the biblical narrative from millennia ago and centuries ago, there's a whole different understanding of what's going on here. What's your take on this? <laughs> I'm tempted to say how long have we got because uh, th- this is obviously a huge topic and I-, I lived in the Middle East for some months when I had a sabbatical teaching at the Hebrew University back in 1989 and so I was uh, teaching alongside um, Jewish scholars at the Hebrew University but I was living alongside some Palestinian Christians at St. George's Cathedral and I heard stories that some of them went back like five years or 50 years, some of them went back a thousand years and more. And uh, the seminars that I was in, uh, listening to particularly Jewish graduate students discussing their history and the biblical history, 
I was aware of how little I knew mm-hmm. as, as a Brit. And, and uh, I still would say this is not my speciality. Um, but the more I know, the more I realise how complicated it's all become. Um, however, in the New Testament, and not least in Romans itself and in Galatians and Ephesians, but Romans certainly, um, Paul seems to be redefining all that swathe of history because he says something incredibly powerful, which he just drops in actually in chapter 4 when he says the promise to Abraham and his descendants that he would inherit the world. He doesn't say the land, he says the world. And he seems to be seeing, as some other Jews of the time did, the promise about the land as an advance foretaste or symbol for God's intention that Abraham's family would eventually inherit the whole cosmos, the whole world. And in Romans 8, which this book is about, when he talks about inheritance, he's talking about the whole creation, which presently is groaning in travail, but which will be set free from its slavery to decay. And so when we talk about the Christian's inheritance, we often think of heaven, or then you have a dichotomy between is it heaven or is it this strip of land in the Middle East or what? And Paul would say, no, it's, it's actually the whole world. And part of the point of the church is to work out what that's going to look like in practice. And the church has sometimes got that horribly wrong and sometimes right. One of the questions I have about the present Middle Eastern crisis is, um, how are my brother and sister Christians in the Holy Land um, faring in the middle of this? Mm -hmm. Many of whom, if they're Jewish Christians, they feel under pressure one way. If they're Palestinian Christians, they feel under pressure in another way. And and it's incredibly tense and difficult. And so I pray for the, the church leaders in, in that part. We're not hearing much from them on the news and so on. No. But they must be right in the middle of this and be feeling the pain the whole time because that weight of history is always there. Like I have to say... In Central Europe, I mean, the whole Ukraine thing and all the trouble that there's been over the centuries between, say, Hungary and Romania, we in Britain, and because we're living on an island, we often don't realise how difficult it is living in a small territory with porous borders and with um, uh, border disputes going back centuries and old memories and folk tales and songs that reflect this. So ah, the whole business of... A, it's much more complicated than we imagine. B, the New Testament does hold out this shimmering hope of an inheritance which is the whole world for God's people, not just one bit of land. But then C, uh, we'll never at the moment understand it and therefore this constitutes a call to lament. And that's a very biblical answer from the Psalms, from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, a call to lament what on earth is going on, what is God doing, Rather than us thinking we've got the analysis, we know the answer, oh, it's all because this prophecy is being fulfilled, fill in the dots, boom, 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 there we are, so it's Armageddon tomorrow. Um, No, I just don't think we can do that. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're meant to do that. The first thing is to groan in travail, knowing that God's Holy Spirit is groaning within us as we are sharing in the pain of the world right now. Because a lot of people are thinking, well, this is about the battle of Islam and and, and and Judaism and Christianity, but but this battle, this conflict predates Islam. The battle and conflict, yeah, go way, way back, and and to not just one battle either, but, but it predates Christianity, of course. Well, well, of course, of course. But um, the, the what happens when after the main bit of the Babylonian exile, when some of the Judeans come back to the land and they uh, recolonize the bit around Jerusalem and the bit in Galilee, that is already hugely controversial. There are other cities in the area. There is no country called Israel at that time, which people get muddled about. Um, rather, you have cities with the hinterland of that city 
community. So the Judeans are those who live in Judea around Jerusalem, but there are other non-Jewish cities in the area who didn't want the Jews to come back right then. And so you've got major tension in the first century, um, which is made worse, of course, by the Romans uh, misgoverning, um, horribly misgoverning, and then some of the Judeans rebelling against that, and, and then you have the terrible war and so on. And and you've probably been to Israel, you've probably seen the burnt house where there's a re- remains of when the Romans set fire to the city. And those memories are still fresh. They're still alive. They're still around. And, and those of us who are followers of Jesus can only look on in sorrow and say, as Paul says in Romans 9, um, we, we, are, we are driven to tears by the, the horror that has happened to the Jewish people and then now by the multiple horrors that have happened in all directions to which some well-meaning but sometimes misguided Christians have contributed themselves. So that there's no high moral ground here where we can look down from a great height and say, well, they got this wrong or they got that mm-hmm. wrong. We, we, we've all messed up and that's why lament is the appropriate response. Um, I don't know. I don't want to... Yeah, yeah. I don't want to corner you or make you make some kind of political statement, but it seems to me, were we right to partition the land in 1948 and call it Israel? Because it was a political move, not a... People have said about the Balfour Declaration, which was, of course, 20 years earlier than that, um, more than 20 years earlier than that, that by what right did a British prime minister give a land belonging to people A to people B, you know, which was how it appeared to the Palestinians. How, how, how come he had the right to say to the Jewish people at the time, yes, you can have this bit of land? But we go back to the Balfour Declaration as one of the, one of the drivers of the then post-Second War um, uh, settlement, and that was a United Nations decision. United Nations has made many other decisions since then, some of which have been ignored, um, etc. So it, it's it's a very a very difficult and contentious issue. And I I grew up knowing the story of the Second World War when my own father was a prisoner of war for five years, and so that was what we mainly focused on. But then, as I discovered the story of the Holocaust and the story of the Jewish people and the story of many Jewish people finding no home in Europe anymore and so needing a homeland of their own, that that was the door wherein I went. I, you know, that was my initial understanding. And then when I went and lived in the Middle East and found my next-door neighbour being uh, a Christian archdeacon who was a Palestinian Arab but also an Israeli citizen, I realised life is a bit more complicated than <laughs> I had imagined and we've gone from there. Wow. I was, you were talking about the Romans' involvement yeah, in yeah. the uh, Middle East from way back, obviously. And so this books this this brings us to your book, Into the Heart of Romans, which is yeah. a letter Paul wrote to the Romans. Um, and, you know, it, how long have you been kind of looking at Romans? You know, I, obviously for a long time, you're a New Testament scholar, but, you know, what's your, what's, what's been, what's Romans to you been swimming around in your mind? <sighs> when I was a student in Oxford in the late 60s, some of us used to argue late into the night about the meaning of different passages in Romans, whether it was about predestination or whether it was about um, the, the, the tension between Romans 7 and Romans 8 and are we supposed to leave Romans 7 behind in order to get into Romans 8? We had those discussions and they were great fun. And uh, then when I was studying in seminary, um, I kind of graduated from those discussions into other ones and then I knew that I wanted to do a doctorate and 
the man who had agreed to be my supervisor encouraged me to look at Romans 9 to 11, which is all about um, what is God doing with the people of Israel at that time. And so, in a sense, that's been the story of my life, the backbone of my academic life since the late 60s, early 70s. I've always kept coming back to Romans and um, whatever else I write, Romans 8 has often been at the heart of it. So I'm glad finally to have been able to write a whole <laughs> book just about about that chapter. But I mean, in the first century, and it's re- and as I say in the book, getting the first century context is really important. Why was that part of the world important to people in Rome? And the answer was just as Um, The Middle East is important to us today because it's a major source of oil. So for the Romans, it was a major source of grain, of of corn, of wheat, Mm. um, because Egypt was the breadbasket for the whole of of the Mediterranean. And Rome was always chronically short of food because it was an overcrowded city and they needed the grain. So they needed that part of the world to be at peace. Dream on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like we today would rather that part of the world is at peace so that the oil shipments, etc., can get out. And never mind the bread that's coming from Ukraine. That's a whole other story. But um, so uh, the Romans, in theory, were in the Middle East in order to try to keep the lid on things. Um, but the lid kept blowing off because the Romans were pretty hopeless at trying to govern it. And the Judeans didn't like being ruled by the Romans because they thought they should be free and independent. They were the people of God. And when Paul writes Romans to the church in Rome, or rather the church is, because there are several different churches in Rome, he lists them in in chapter 16 by sending greetings to them, and they seem to be a bit nervous about each other, and we suspect that some of them may be Judean Christians, some of them may be non-Jewish Christians, and there'll be suspicion between these, and Paul is desperate that they would get together and learn how to worship together and to pray together as a single body belonging to Jesus, being followers of Jesus, because he, he he longs for the church to be united around Jesus and in the power of the Spirit before anything too terrible happens in the Middle East, because then it's all going to get worse from there. And of course, that's what happened at the end of the 60s when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. Um, and so Paul is writing with what we today would call an ecumenical edge to say, this is the meaning of salvation. This is how it works. Now, please, will you agree on this, sort out your different learn the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference, and then figure out how to live together so that you can present that united witness to a world that is falling apart. And as I say those words, I find myself saying, do we need that message right now? And I think kind of we probably do, actually. Something very interesting, though, about the Romans, you were talking about how you read Paul in the first place. Um, Let me see if I can find it, and and I apologize if I'm trying to look for, but you have, you know, an instructions of how we're supposed to really understand Uh, Paul. I know that you're talking about the little words in between, the but and. And for and because. For, because, because they're incredibly important when you're reading Paul. Yeah, because so often people have preached on Paul taking individual verses because each verse is packed with power and interest. But if you just take the individual verses, it's as though this is like putting your thumb and pull out a plum. And it's better to do that than not to do anything at all. But the verses mean what they mean as part of a very careful flow of thought. And when Paul says because or therefore or but, 
these are not incidental. He wants you to be thinking through how the whole sequence of thought works. So I say, yeah, there's basically three rules for any Pauline passage. One, look at the beginning and the end of the paragraph, because however complicated it gets in between, he's said where he thinks he's going, he says where he thinks he's come from, and that's what the thing basically means. And now look at the little words, this is the second rule, the ands and the buts and the fors and the therefores, and they will show you the inner logic which will open up the actual train of thought of how the gospel works. And then the third thing is, look at the wider historical and cultural context, the world of Israel, the world of the Greeks and the Romans, and see how Paul's first hearers would resonate with what he's saying. And it seems to me, if you approach any passage in Paul, but especially in Romans, with those rules, um, they won't teach you everything, but they'll teach you a lot. Yeah, I'm going to take a little break on on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We're going to come back and talk about specifically Romans 8. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. And we're back with N.T. Wright, Dr. N.T. Wright, um, a brilliant New Testament um, scholar, uh, world-renowned. And he's written a book called Into the Heart of Romans. And Romans is one of these books that a lot of people hate and love. Um, uh the earlier part of Romans gets at the issue of sin, which is, and that's, we're not going to deal with that today, but that's why a lot of people don't want to deal with Romans because it gets at some things that we do today that Romans and Paul, taking to the Romans, says this is not good. But now we're going to, we're going to focus on Romans 8, and I'm just going to read the opening line. And I know you have your translation, but I'm going to read from the ESV. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, it says, there... There is therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, that is a powerful statement. Very dense, very dense. But, I mean, part of the problem is that opening therefore, because at the end of chapter 7, it looks pretty miserable. Um, You know, I left to myself 
um, serve the law of sin with with my with my flesh, even though I'm serving the law of God with my mind. That sounds a pretty dire place to be. So how does he mean, therefore, there is no condemnation? You'd have thought at the end of chapter 7 that there is plenty of condemnation. But this is a clever bit of writing where he says there is therefore, and then he follows it with because, because, because. And I, I think I use the illustration. It's as though I were to say, um, here's my car. Unfortunately, the tires are, are slashed. Uh, the carburetor is not working. The the um, engine's shot to pieces. There is therefore no problem about me getting to my destination because here's somebody with new tires. Here's a mechanic to fix this, and here's somebody who'll sort out that. In other words, the three becauses explain the apparently illogical therefore, and you need to line them all up to get it. But what he's basically saying there, which is uh, which demands a certain going beyond a surface reading is that somehow God, the God who gave the law to Moses, um, so many Christians have imagined that the law is this nasty, terrifying thing which tells us we're all sinners and then in order to get saved, you've got to sweep the law away. Paul says, no, actually, the purpose of the law was to give life. The problem was that we humans were not well suited to be the receivers of that law. And Israel, as the specific recipient of the law, was itself a human people who had the same problem as the rest of us. But God's purpose to give life through the law has been fulfilled in what God has done through the Messiah and the Spirit. By the way, I always translate Christos not as the name Christ, but as the the Hebrew title uh, Messiah, because this means the, the, the anointed king, the one who sums up Israel in himself and completes God's purpose for Israel. So Messiah and Spirit together do what the law couldn't do. And so when you go right the way through the paragraph to verse 11, therefore few... If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised the Messiah from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also. In other words, no condemnation, resurrection. That's the link from verse 1 to verse 11. That's why Romans 8 is full of hope, because when he examines close up and personal what God did in the death of Jesus and what God is now doing in the spirit, then we see that the whole problem, all that stuff about sin and the law and worries about final judgment, that's been dealt with on the cross. But now those who are indwelt by God's spirit are the ones who will be raised from the dead into God's new creation when he makes that happen. We have a problem, though, with that. We still do have a problem with that. Because, Just one problem? Probably well, lost. We probably, well, <laughs> we have a lot of problems with that. But the problem is, is that the law still stands, right? The law is not negated in the sense that you still... This is the moral standard that still well, exists. But, but the, the, the word law for Paul doesn't just mean a, a kind of abstract moral standard. Part mm-hmm. of the problem here is the philosophical one that through the 18th and 19th century, people have heard the word law in exactly the sense you just described. For Paul, the law, uh, the Greek nomos, means the Torah, the, the five books of Moses, which is not just a moral standard. That's just Exodus 20, where you get the Ten Commandments and so on. It's the whole story from Adam and Abraham right on to the end of Deuteronomy, which is all about those strange promises and warnings at the end of Deuteronomy. And Paul sees, Paul is here exactly on the same page as some other first century Jews, like the historian Josephus, who saw that the whole of the five books of Moses was like a story which they were still living in. Josephus says that the Song of Moses tells about 
the things which were going to happen and which are happening in our own day. And Paul would agree. So when he talks about the law being fulfilled, it isn't just about a moral code and do we keep it or not. It's about the entire narrative of the people of God. And Paul says, when the Messiah comes, that brings this whole thing to a head. And I think any first century Jew would know that if somebody turns up who really does seem to be Messiah, who God validates as Messiah, then this means this is where the story was really going. And so that's what Paul has in mind. What we've done is we've turned this whole picture into a kind of a moralistic thing, Mm. which it was not meant to be. Of course, God wants his human creatures Jesus followers to live as renewed human beings with all that that means, what we would call morally. But to think that the New Testament is about a moral standard, either you've kept it or not, or so you're either going upstairs or downstairs, that's that's a shrinkage of the actual biblical message and turning it into something which it really wasn't and shouldn't be. I want to move on to some of the other chapters, yeah, sure. though, because you, uh, I mean, you really go through each verse and... Mm-hmm. and every four verses or so, every three verses, and really pick them apart. But one of the things that's very powerful is this idea of being led by the Spirit. Yeah, yeah. What is What does that mean, being led by the Spirit? Well, Paul is there channeling, if you like, the great story of the Exodus in the Old Testament, where the children of Israel are set free from Egypt. God brings them through the Red Sea. They are led into the wilderness and Who is leading them? Well, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, which turns out to be this strange, maybe threatening, certainly scary presence of God himself leading them through the desert. They come to Mount Sinai where they are given the law, but the law is not an end in itself. The law is to prepare them to be the people in whose midst God comes to dwell in the tabernacle. So that from Exodus 20, where they're given the law, to Exodus 40, where they build the tabernacle, and the pillar of cloud and fire comes and lives in the tabernacle so that God is living with and amongst his people. That's how the whole story works. Now, Paul has that entire narrative in mind. Romans 6, you come through the waters, which is baptism, as a result of which you are no longer slaves but are free. Romans 7, you come to confront the Torah. Romans 7 is all about the law. But then you move on in Romans 8, 1 to 11, but then the bit you quote from verse 12 following, we are now led by the Spirit to the inheritance, back to previous conversation, where for the children of Israel, they are led through the wilderness, they are given the living presence of God on the way to the inheritance, which is the promised land. Now for Paul, being led by the Spirit is by the living God himself in the person of the Spirit, who just like the cloud and fire coming to live in the tabernacle, the Spirit comes to live in the hearts and lives of, of, of Jesus' followers in order to lead them to the true inheritance, which is the whole world, and the whole world is now God's holy land. And that that means that they are then pitchforked into this situation because we know that the whole world is still groaning in travel, is still in a real mess, and that we feel that mess in ourselves. And we are told then strangely that God himself in the midst is groaning along with us, along with creation. And that is part of the Christian's vocation. So being led by the Spirit 
means what it means as the new Exodus story being led to the true inheritance and therefore, like the children of Israel in the wilderness, uh, we, we are groaning, we are crying, we are complaining because we are longing to get where we're going. And Paul says that too is part of God's strange purpose. That is how he is doing the great act of final redemption. A couple of questions I have. One, how do you know if you're being led by the Spirit? How do you know oh. the Holy Spirit is with you? It's a great question. And I think Paul would say that all those who are followers of Jesus should be part of the fellowship of Jesus' people. And when you're with other Jesus followers, um, you should be able in fellowship to tell one another whether you're maybe stepping out of line or thinking bizarre thoughts or whatever it may be. In other words, it isn't just a solo thing. We have made it a very individualistic thing, but for Paul, that wouldn't have registered, I think. But also, of course, for Paul... A lot of it is about Jesus. If you look at Paul's other letters, he talks about the the truth as it's revealed in Jesus and here's how Jesus was. And so be kind to one another and forgiving one another because that's the model of who God is, which we see in Jesus. So there's there's basic rules of thumb about being Jesus followers and anyone who isn't living by those rules of thumb and, you know, telling the truth and and, and being kind and forgiving one another, these are pretty basic. Anyone who isn't doing those things but claims to be led by the Spirit should be confronted by somebody gently and firmly in <laughs> church leadership to say, look, sorry, mate, um, this, is, this is out of line. So, it, 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 of course, there are times when people feel a sudden surge of something and, and hope and pray that this is the Holy Spirit. But church history is littered with the remains of ideas and movements where somebody was quite sure the Holy Spirit was telling them to do X, Y, or Z. Sorry, Z, I'm in America now. Um, <laughs> and, and then discover 5, 10, 20 years down the track that it was a false thing and that we can easily be led astray. And so uh, humility is really necessary, humility and patience to discern when the Spirit is saying something. And because a lot of Romans 8 is about vocation. It's about what the Spirit is calling us to do and be. And vocation has to be tested. And, you know, in a sense, vocation is something that you can only finally say, I definitely was called some distance down the track. If you turn up on day one and say, God is calling me to do this or that, then I, as an erstwhile church leader, would say, well, let's just pray about this, shall we? (laughs) You know, that brings up because the Synod on Synodality is going on at the Vatican right now, and that's the whole basis of it, that this Holy Spirit is leading them to in what direction the church should go. And you're not, you're an Anglican, you're not um, of the Roman Orthodox Church, but Still, it's the same idea. Sure. And uh, I was actually at the equivalent synod in 2008. I was the Anglican observer at the Synod of Bishops then. And a lot, uh, that was actually a synod on the Word of God. But the same questions arise. How do we know if um, the Holy Spirit is leading us in this direction or not? And the church has, at its best, always been open to being wise and mature about asking that. But it's easier for people to foreclose and say, well, uh, in my Bible it says this, therefore if you're not doing that, And somebody might come along and say, excuse me, I've got a Bible too, and there's a bit, it's a bit more complicated. Or they might say, well, the magisterium of the church teaches this, therefore, and others will say, well, the magisterium of the church has sometimes done some rather strange things. So um, 
you know, it's not as easy. We like to make it easy for ourselves. And as a teacher, if you've got particularly young people wanting to follow Jesus, then it's no good saying, oh, it's all terribly complicated because, you know, they need firm guidelines, boundaries, etc., just like any young people need in, in ordinary life. Um, and not to give them some firm guidelines is pretty cruel, actually. That's why, as I say, when I think about Paul's um, ethics, uh, people... When we say ethics these days, people automatically gravitate towards sex. And sex is important, but it, you know, it's like a friend of mine who wrote a, a sort of a known credo, the things he didn't believe. And one of the, one of the lines was, "I do not believe in Marx or Freud. Money and sex are important, but not that important." Which is <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a great line. Um, but when you look at Paul's whole ethics. Um, being in fellowship with people, learning how to navigate human relationships, hence kindness and forgiveness and so on, are so important, so front and centre. Why do we hear more sermons on that? Because sometimes the churches that are most fierce about teaching about sexuality, whether in a liberal or a conservative direction, can then very easily forget all the kindness and forgiveness which actually, and the telling of the truth, which ought to be front and centre. So I want to say... Um, being led by the Spirit ought to be leading to all those things. And you can see that again across um, all of Paul's letters pretty much. Um, one of the things that uh, people have said to me, more than one or two, but it, it strikes me as very insulated, I don't know, but they want only to focus on the New Testament. Oh. And they discount the Old Testament. I mean, they're very adamant about it because they only want to follow yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And they don't want anything to do with the, with the um, the fire and brimstone of you know the Old Testament. So, yeah. how, what do you say to that? If you were, if someone said that to yeah. you, yeah. I only want to deal with the New Testament and Jesus. I don't want to deal with the Old Testament. Well. There's all sorts of things I might say, but <laughs> one, one, one of which would be you're going to lose most of the New Testament as well, then because. Much of the New Testament consists of allusions to and invocations of the Old Testament. Matthew begins his gospel um, with the, the words Biblos Genesios, the book of the Genesis, and then he tells the genealogy from Abraham through to Jesus. In other words, saying the story that I'm telling you is the story of how Israel's great narrative uh, reached its climax. Um, Mark does something very similar in a completely different way by quoting from Malachi and Isaiah about God coming back as he'd promised in the Old Testament. And so Mark is saying, if you want to know what happens when we see Jesus appearing on page one to be baptized by John, this is the fulfillment of what Isaiah and Malachi, etc., were talking about. So if you say, no, don't give me Isaiah and Malachi, well, sorry, you won't make it onto the first page of Mark's gospel. And, and the same is true for, for John, who is echoing Genesis and Exodus in his great prologue. If you say we don't want Genesis and Exodus, well, you've just said you don't want to understand John's gospel. So, I mean, I understand that at a superficial reading, especially if you insist on diving straight into the books of Joshua and Judges, there are passages in the Old Testament which make your hair stand on end and say, how could God be involved in this violence and this extraordinary stuff that's going on? But actually... Please read the Psalms, read Isaiah, read um, the great sweep of uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy as a whole, the Torah. Um, read the other prophets. And again and again, you'll see that they are wrestling with these questions as well. They are wrestling with the question of, we believe in this gracious, merciful God. 
we see terrible things happening in our lives and we suspect this is because the world is out of joint and we are sharing that out of jointness. And the New Testament doesn't say, forget all that stuff about the world being out of joint. The New Testament tells the story of Jesus as the place where the out of jointness of the world finally came together. And one of the extraordinary things about the way that the story of Jesus is told in all four Gospels, I mean, they're different, but it's the same story, is that once Jesus comes and says it's time for God to become king, literally all hell breaks loose. You know, shrieking demons in the synagogue, plotting Pharisees and Herodians, disciples who don't get the message and who betray him or deny him, etc. And it's as though all the stuff which we really don't like in the Old Testament um, has come rushing forwards and conspires to put Jesus on the cross. And it's as though the cross is God's ultimate answer to exactly the questions that make people foolishly say we don't want the Old Testament. Because Jesus himself saw his upcoming death as the fulfillment of scriptures. He says again and again, the scriptures must be fulfilled. So if you're going to say you want Jesus, not the Old Testament, well, sorry, this is going to be a Bible-less Jesus, which is a, a toothless Jesus, and ultimately a crossless Jesus. Wow. You, you must get awfully frustrated at the uh, biblical um, ignorance uh, in the world today. Um, I get a little frustrated. Um, I, I would much rather that people knew a little bit of the Bible and were prepared to have a little nibble at more than that they just discounted the whole thing. And... I mean, for myself, I've spent my I've been very, very fortunate. I'm one of the lucky ones. I get to spend the last 50, 60 years reading and studying the Bible. It's a wonderful way to spend a life. But I know that I'm constantly seeing new things and thinking, where did that come from? I didn't see that last time through or, or some new insight and realizing, why did nobody tell me this when I was in college? You know, and I'm going on and on and on. And I have the sense that where all of us on the edge of a great ocean here. Some of us may be up to the waist, some of us may be only paddling up to the ankles. There's far, far more. And so it behoves me not to be too snooty about the people who are only just putting their little toe in yet, because we're actually none of us that much further in. And so if I'm a little bit further and I want to say, come on in, it's exciting, it's dangerous, there are big waves out here, but my goodness, wait till you, wait till you try swimming in this whole thing. The end of Romans 8 Nothing can separate us from God's love. This is obviously the good news. How does he how does he build that argument of finally saying nothing can separate us from God's love? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's classic in the last great paragraph of Romans, which is verses thirty-one to uh, Romans eight, verses thirty-one to thirty-nine of Romans eight. Paul does something he rarely does, which is to quote from the law and the prophets and the writings, the three great divisions of the Old Testament canon. So here again, you, you need the Old Testament, guys. Um, so he quotes from the bit about Abraham and Isaac where God says to Abraham, "You didn't spare your son, your only son," and Paul says God didn't spare his only son. And it's that extraordinary love of God which is the bedrock of the whole thing. So that's the beginning and end of this paragraph, that nothing should separate us from his love. Um, and then he quotes um, from Isaiah about um, it is God who justifies, so who's going to condemn us? And he does this whole riff which um, comes from that wonderful mid middle section of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 55, all about... Israel in exile needing to know that uh, God hasn't been phased by this. Indeed, God is in it and God is working in and through it. 
And then he also quotes from the Psalms, Psalm 44, one of the great lament Psalms, for your sake we are being killed all day long, counted like sheep to be slaughtered. And when Paul does this, law, prophets, writings, it's a kind of Jewish or rabbinic trick to say, this is really being underlined here. If we're quoting each bit of the Bible, you need to take this very seriously. He does it again in chapter 15. He does it in Galatians 4. He does it one or two other times. But it's it's kind of unique in, in, in this bit of Romans. And so it's as though Paul is saying the whole of the scriptural narrative is rushing forwards towards the revelation of God's unbreakable love in Messiah Jesus. And so when you look at Jesus the Jesus who was raised from the dead and is now at God's right hand and who is even interceding for us there, then just keep your eyes fixed on him and you'll know that this is the revelation of the love of the creator God, not some local tribal God, but the God who made heaven and earth. And that's the kind of sigh of relief moment. And you see, people often forget this because the argument of Romans carries us forward in such a such a rush. But Paul is writing to a church that was about to go into terrible persecution within 10 years when Nero, who was already on the throne, uh, t- had it in for the early Christians and, and did horrible, terrible things to them. And so Paul is saying, you know, you will go through the fire, you will go through terrible times, uh, you will be counted as sheep for the slaughter, but hang in there because nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love. Wow. Um, And just one reference to what I said in the introduction about Martin Luther. Is it true that he, it was because of his reading of Romans that things changed? (laughs) I heard Um, that. I heard that. That is broadly true. That is broadly true. In Europe at the start of the 16th century, there were all sorts of reforming movements. A lot of people, not only Martin Luther, were fed up with the way that the medieval Catholic Church had kind of overgrown some of its own pomposity, etc. There were brilliant people, there were deeply spiritual people, etc. in the 15th century and in the Roman church in the early 16th century, but there were all sorts of abuses and lots of people, not only Martin Luther, could see them. Now, Luther was grasped by Romans 1, 16 and 17, where it's the revelation of the righteousness of God. And he said, this is God's saving righteousness, not God's judging righteousness. And that was enough to get him going. Now, The rest of the Reformation didn't always agree with even the way Luther read Romans. And so there's a big difference between Luther and Calvin for a start. And the English reformers, some of my heroes, who are kind of watching this going on on the continent are saying, well, actually, I think it perhaps goes like this or like that. So like most things in life, it gets more complicated the closer you get up to it. (laughs) But um, the problem then is, and it's a real problem, that for Martin Luther... uh, opposing the Roman Catholic Church of his day, uh, he seized on Paul as his hero to oppose the legalism that he saw Paul opposing in the Jewish world. And the danger then was that all the things that Luther wanted to grumble about with Rome, he thought Paul was grumbling about with the Jews and the law. And that started a 400-year tradition of dumping on the Jews the Protestant rejection of Rome. And a lot of that stuff just doesn't fit. There's a lot of things which Luther and the others thought was wrong with Rome, which have nothing to do with first century Judaism. Now, Karl Barth, the great Protestant theologian in the middle of the 20th century, saw this already in the 1950s, but nobody was listening to him when he said that. 
But in the last 50 years, thank God, um, the modern scholarship on Judaism, of which I've had a small part, um, has made that very clear that the, the old Lutheran reading of Romans, while it gets you going energetically down one track, you have to pull right back from it in terms of the real danger is a horrible danger of imagining that the Jews, which is a kind of a symbol and slogan, as it were, um, are guilty of whatever it is that uh, um, Luther was worried about with Rome. So there's all sorts of issues there where I want to say, yes, Brother Martin got a lot of things right, but actually he planted some time bombs, which sadly exploded a bit later and, and wow. have been pretty devastating. So always the task is to go back and do fresh readings of Romans and the rest of the Pauline corpus in the hope and prayer of being able to get things more clear and, and more, more Christian, basically. Well, the book is called um, Into the Heart of Romans, a deep dive into Paul's greatest letter, um, the letter to the Romans. And N.T. Wright, so many books, I'll tell you, people just need to read your stuff. Um, <laughs> Some of the some of the academic stuff can't read uh, because uh, I don't read Greek. Oh, well. <laughs> but there's always time. It's worth learning. It's a, it's, lovely, it's a okay, lovely language. Okay. But luckily, you have written very user friendly kinds of Good. books as well. Uh, the book on the resurrection, yeah. um, on Paul too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So incredible, vast amounts of knowledge. I want to thank you for being a Lighthouse Faith podcast. Thank you. My pleasure, as always. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Amazon Prime members can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music app or just hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player. And thank you all for listening. I'm Lauren Green. This has been Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Have a blessed day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.